Welcome to this edition of Who's Round, which is augmented by snoring. Everybody's a critic, including, it seems, my subject's dog. Contribution to Doctor Who has been in more episodes than anybody else's, and you'll know when I, you'll know why when I ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm speaking to him about Doctor Who. Well, um, well I'm Brian Hodgson, and I was the original sound designer for Doctor Who, so it fell to me to create things like the TARDIS and the Daleks' voices, and in fact, all of those early um, Doctor Who sound effects. I did it for I think it was nine years. Um, before I left the BBC. And you've talked often and eloquently about uh, your key contributions like the, the TARDIS and the, uh, and the Dalek sound effects. So I, I guess we begin by saying what got you to where you were when Doctor Who was starting at the BBC? Because so, you'd start, you started as an actor at one point, hadn't you? Yeah. Um, well, it's a strange sort of circumstances. I, I started life as an actor, um, as a student at Southport Rep, because I lived in Liverpool. And then I went in the Air Force uh, to do my national service and ended up in Northern Ireland uh, working on submarine detection uh, devices. You dropped in the water and they told the airplane where the, the submarines were. So when I came out of the Air Force, having done air wireless. Um, so I picked up a fair amount of technical stuff on the way. Uh, a friend of mine I'd met when I was a student at Southport uh, had turned into an agent and he asked me if I'd like to pop out on tour. There was a rash of sex players went out at that time. They were all a bit near the knuckle and rather naughty. Nowadays nobody would turn a hair. But, uh, so I went off on tour. Uh, with this for three months, I think it was. We played, this was about the 50th tour of this play. It had made masses amounts of money and played all the Moss Empires at one point. By the time we were doing it, we were playing stuff like the Star Theatre Scunthorpe and the Gateshead Soldo. And so I, I went off on, on that, stated some really wonderful, grotty theatrical digs. Uh, the sort of theatrical digs that don't exist anymore. I mean, what those one run by two old ladies that had a big gas geezer over the bath, which was lovingly polished. Um, and you bought the food and they cooked it for you when you got here from the theatre. That was magical days, uh, as well as awful. Like sitting up with a uh, an electric fire with a sort of element in a bowl connected uh, on a side plug to the light bulb um, in the snow in Scunthorpe. Um, <laughs> no, really horrendous times. Anyway, where was he? Uh, yeah, I... Uh, so the tour eventually went bust and uh, I ended up without a job 
um, not having had any of my national insurance paid for the period. Uh, and then suddenly got a call from a theatre in Wales. Uh, uh, asked if, said that I'd been recommended by the management of the tour I'd been on. Because uh, I stood in at one point as stage director when the stage director walked off because he hadn't been paid. Uh, and I'd, I'd stepped in as stage director because I'd been trained at Southport Rep. And some the guy who'd walked off had applied to be stage director at Swansea that, that year. And uh, when his reference was taken up, they said, oh, no, get Brian because he's better. And so I went down to Swansea as stage director. Um, and saying, you know, if I'm going to be stage director, I really don't want to um, actually have to do parts as well. Uh, so out of the 26-week season, I only played 21 times. <laughs> <laughs> Not big things, you know, but... Uh, while I was there, I saw the BBC were advertising studio managers. Uh, so I wrote and applied. And... The end of the season, I was offered a stage manager job at Bolton, which was near Liverpool. So I thought I'd go back and whatnot. And I'm waiting for the BBC. And again, I said no. I'm gonna, I, I've just done a season where I played 21 out of 26 dates and being stage director. This time I don't want to play. And they said no, no, no. You won't be called upon to do that. Um, so I think then I played. 22 after 23 <laughs> weeks, um, as well as being stage manager. Anyway, it was good fun. Um, Bolton was a nice place. And then I, I got uh, the call from BBC saying they'd interview me as a studio manager. So what I, what I would do is uh, ask them to do me the first interview in the morning. So I'd go down on the milk train uh, as I came off stage one night. You know, uh have the first interview and then get straight back to Euston and then straight back up to, to Bolton in time because it was twice nightly there. It's in time for the first performance in the evening. Um, and I did that three or four times and eventually I got aboard. By then they'd already informed that they'd had, I think it was 4,000 applications which had been whittled down to 400 and there were 12 jobs so I thought oh well you know it's a good experience all this traveling around you know, when you're in early 20s 21 22 it's, it's fun um, and then suddenly we, they said we want you to go come down for a board and I went down and I suddenly was faced with all these very impressive BBC gentlemen in suits and Virus in their top pockets and things. And the day started beautifully for me because uh, the first thing you had to do was voice test. So you were sent down into this tiny room about the size of a, a large telephone box. And there was a naked light bulb, very bright naked light bulb. It was painted red inside here. Painted this naked light bulb, which was very bright, and there was a pile of scripts in front of you, a big old-fashioned BBC microphone. And a voice suddenly came out of a speaker, turned up far too loud behind you, and saying, 
read pirate, you know, uh, page so-and-so. So I started to read and got stage fright. Uh, I literally just dried out and I thought, took a deep breath, carried on. Um, went upstairs. These terrifying people firing all sorts of questions at me. And I thought, that's it. You know, I, no way am I going to get this. Uh, so I, I went back uh, to the theatre that night, rang my father, and said, don't hold... He always wanted to get a proper job. You know, Don't hold your hopes up because I, I just blew it today. Everything that went wrong could have gone wrong. And then on... The f I think it was two days later, I got a phone call from the BBC saying a vacancy has occurred on the next course. Uh, as you're coming to the end of your season, would you be free to take it up? So I, I mean, that's blown out of my mind. I, a, I got the job. Uh, and I gave my notice in. Having already agreed to go back to Swansea the following year, they, they agreed to uh, release me from contract. And I came off stage one night, on a Saturday night, and I joined the BBC on the Monday morning. Um, and it's very strange, because I'd been dealing as a stage manager with Wig Creations in London, one of the other guys was the guy I used to deal with at Wig Creations. <laughs> um, he, he was on the course too, Warren Handen, who uh, became an announcer in the overseas service. Uh, so I found myself at the BBC, I did my training as a studio manager and uh, when you finish your training you get sent off uh, you can choose where you in those days anyway whether you went to the overseas service or the domestic service but you had to do uh, three months at each of the services before you could then be allocated to a department so I went off to uh, Bush House which was it's just so much fun and so, uh, such a wonderful place to work. You know, with sort of night shifts where you're you know, at three o'clock in the morning, a red light goes on and you say, we now say farewell to our listeners in Western Samoa and greet our listeners in Sarawa, or you know, words to that effect. And all you are, you're the little link between the transmitters switching over. Anyway, had a great time there. Came back to Broadcasting House worked in domestic, didn't like it very much, you know, it was news and stuff, but then I found I, I could actually apply to go to drama departments, which was fine, so I went, I became a drama SM and spent two years uh, just doing loads of plays with, you know, fantastic people like uh, Val Gilgood, Freddie Poitoyne, um, Raymond Rakes, Archie Campbell, Audrey Cameron, just amazing sort of characters and working with doing super things uh, working with a lot of old actors and things who were still working in those days people like Heron Carvin Heron Carvin uh, Phyllis Nielsen Terry I worked with Dame Sybil um, had Martin to hunt uh, all these amazing people I'd only ever heard of and, and then suddenly I was, I was working with them then at the end of two years, I was sent off uh, to the BBC Engineering Training School, where they 
tried to take these studio manager characters who were all a bit arty um, and teach them about engineering. A bit of the stuff I knew already. So I sent off to Evesham. We did a, a course production, of course. We, we did it. it was a sort of send-up of, of the engineering training school, uh, which was run at that time by a very severe Scottish Presbyterian um, who wouldn't allow Sunday papers on the campus. And, things like <laughs> and they, he gave a, apparently a, a birthday party for his... The 21st birthday party for his daughter and invited some of the more um, gentlemanly people uh, to it. Uh, a friend of mine had been invited. And apparently BBC clubs it, yes, he, he's ordered two dozen Coca-Cola on sale or return. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably doing this very brilliant man in a terrible <laughs> disservice. But that was, you know, that was BBC in those days. Um, we're talking... 1960-61-62 when we got back to we were released from this sort of prison camp after so many weeks we could then apply to be attached permanently to various departments and we, to do that we were given a tour of all the departments in the BBC so we did that and I went to the radiophonic workshop and uh, I was really knocked out by it. Um, so I applied then to have a, an attachment, and it was a month's attachment. I uh, went for a month and stayed there for, I think it was nine or ten years. Um, and that's where, of course, I, I arrived just before, I think, late, late 62. And of course, Doctor Who started in '63, and I dearly was asked to do the music with Ron Grainer, and I was asked to do the sound. So, what was it about the workshop that had that had knocked you out? Well, I'd actually heard the first um, experimental broadcast when I was in the Air Force in Northern Ireland, um, which was Private Dreams and Public Nightmares. It was an experimental broadcast that was done, and I. I I picked it up from, because we used to listen to a lot of radio in those days, I, television wasn't really part of one's life. Um, and I'd listen to it, I used to listen to a lot of radio drama, uh, and I'd heard that and I thought, wow. And I just, went, the last year of being in the Air Force, I just got my own tape recorder and things like that, and used to sort of play with the tape recorders, making sounds and things. So. It, it just felt a natural progression for me. Um, for me, I never really claimed anything I did was was music. For me, it was part of the theatre of sound. So, all through my life, and pe other people have called what they do music. I have always said it was something different, but that's not the end of that. <laughs> And so who was there when you... So um, Desmond Briscoe was the, the head of the workshop. Desmond Briscoe was head of the workshop. Uh, Norman Bain was there. Uh, Madeline Fagandini, who did the first pop record at the Radiophonic Workshop, called Time Beat, with Ray Cathay. Janeth <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Worsley... Dick Mills was then an engineer there. 
uh, John Harrison uh, was an engineer there. Uh, and did I mention Dickie Bird? He was the engineer, and he was the guy who'd. I just had to slip back slightly. When the workshop was started, they were given two thousand pounds, which is a lot of money uh, in those days, which they blew virtually on one filter, um, and any equipment they could restore from redundant plant. And, and Dickie Bird was a was brilliant engineer, and he got all sorts of old tape recorders out, then got them working again, and had, had filled the workshop with lots and lots of interesting sort of laboratory and uh, recording equipment, and very primitive stuff. I mean, things like the RGD tape recorder, which you could vary the speed of from three and three quarters to seven and a half. Our main recordings were done on ferrographs, and we had one BTR2, which was the standard professional machine uh, then in use in the BBC. We had one of those. We had a TR90, which was like a portable BTR2, also by EMI, which was the studio workhorse. But you had to book them, especially to have them in studios, because they weren't normally in a studio. In, in those days, you had the rows of uh, gramophone turntables. And if you were very, very lucky, you were allowed to book one of these portable tape recorders. We had an Ampex, which had come out the wall. And a pair of motive sacoche machines. Now, th these were amazing machines. They each were in a console. When you press the record button, they took 15 minutes to get up to speed. <laughs> but they would run in sync, and they would run in sync all day because they were just so superbly engineered. Once you got them in sync, they would stay in sync. It was more than you say about most of the tape recorders we went on to work with after that. They had another amazing characteristic was to service them. The you pressed a button and the decks rose majestically into the air, and then you went around the back of the machine. You opened two doors, and you went in, you know, like a, a mechanic with your spanners and things. And that's how they were serviced. But the other nice thing about that was, of course, that. They would carry on recording and playing back uh, if you did that. So one of the tricks for you had a young, inexperienced producer there, you'd be playing them back with their program, and you'd stand with your back to the console, and you you press the, the rise button, and you see the horrified faces of the hearing cords <laughs> rose majestically into the air. Um, we were always sort of playing silly tricks like that. Um, so I... Was at the workshop. I got involved with Doctor Who. I did loads and loads of other things. I worked with uh, loads of other television directors. Did umpteen different shows for children's television, uh, for television drama. Worked a lot with Philip Savile, who I think of all television directors I've ever worked with was the greatest of all time. Um, what was it about him that makes you single him out? He just had this immense talent for television direction. I mean, he was, he was always going over budget and things like that. And, you know, he, he was always in trouble for having spent half of Dormady Department's budget for the next two years, <laughs> things like that. 
But whatever he did was always stupendous. Um, oh, his production of uh, Mahagoni was just amazing. Um, he did a Dracula that nearly bankrupted drama departments and went on to sort of win awards all over the world and, and be sold all over the world. Is that the one with Louis Jordan, Frank yeah, Finley? Yeah. yeah. Um, but a brilliant, a brilliant, a wonderful. One day someone's going to get all the Philip stuff together and uh, I'm sure produce a really fantastic film about him. Uh, the, I, the first one I worked on with him was uh, The Machine Stops by Ian Foster. So an Out of the Unknown, isn't it? It was an Out of yeah. the Unknown. Um, and I'd heard terrible, terrible stories about Philip um, as being a real <laughs> work for um, And so he, well, he made an appointment to come over to Maidenvale to talk to me. It was, I think, about half six at night, and they'd, everyone had gone, and I was sitting in the office. And he came in, and he, and he a men, I mean, incredibly good looking guy, um, but with presence, you know. As you walked through the door, you knew a star of some sort was coming through that door. And I looked up, looked a bit shattered, so I expected this you know, middle-aged monster to walk through the door, and he expected probably a BBC engineer to be sitting there by the desk. We looked at each other and he said, let's go and have a drink. And that sort of started a friendship um, that really went on for a long time. Machine Stops actually won an award. It was the first television program ever to win a science fiction film festival in Rome. Philip hadn't been told it had been entered. I hadn't been told, or anybody. Only the producer, Irene Shubik, um, had been told. And she, she had been sent out to pick up the prize. No, it, first we heard, I, I picked up Sunday Times and saw it as a little thing. Next thing the phone rings from Philip saying... Did you know this had been entered? <laughs> He'd not been told either. In those days, it wasn't considered necessary to tell you know, the people who actually worked on the programme that it had won an award. But I think of, of all the television directors uh, I've ever worked with, I got more joy and pleasure out of working with, with Philip. Uh, and also Patrick Garland. Who, oh, who's just recently passed away. Yeah, um, who was also a brilliant director. But, you know, Patrick Garner was an actor. You were an actor, and you yeah. you started becoming a, a sort of technical bod, as it were. Mm. Did you ever... Because the, the idea that you would go to the BBC and with your voice and your acting experience would end up tinkering and experimenting with <laughs> machines it seems a strange one. Did you never miss and hanker to perform and use your voice and things like that? I, I used to use my voice for monsters and all sorts. And, and of course, my voice was the original voice... Um, because the Dalek voice treatment started life as um, the Jones robot on a radio children's thing called Sword from the Stars. And he was a, a rather posh uh, robot that belonged to this family. And I devised the treatment for this robot and use my own voice because I was able to elongate the vowels. That, you know. But he was he, he was a bit like you know the uh, the posh robot in Star Wars, long before that yeah. existed. Um, 
So when the Daleks came along, I wanted to use the same thing. Uh, and one of the problems with the, the voice treatment is it basically turns the, the voice on and off you know, so many times a second. And for the Daleks, we needed some sort of real sort of characterization. And so um, I did an experimental session with Peter Hawkins and Richard Martin, who's the director. Uh, and we worked out, so, so Peter was able to elongate all the vowels. So exterminate. So all the vowels and consonants kept nice and tight. And he did the characterization. Uh, so Peter, Peter really did all. All I did was provide a box and switch it on and off, and just work with him for about half an hour. Oh but yeah, I think you understand yourself because it's a method that is still being used for the for them today. I mean, all the advances in technology yeah. and everything else, the Dalek voice, the TARDIS sound effect, the interior TARDIS sound, all your stuff still all there. Yeah, I think the other, the other thing which was nice um, is the Dalek control room and the fact that they brought that back in mm. the new series, uh, and that strangely enough caused more perturbation in my sort of surroundings. People kept ringing me up and emailing me saying, it's wonderful to have your sounds back on Doctor Who. Um, that was, I think, the only thing that was actually noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a strange... There's something weird about um, that and the voice. The sound, sounds are weird. There's something strangely comforting yet disorienting about them at the same time, if a thing can be so. Yeah, the, the whole co idea, because I, I had some, some crazy idea in the back of my head of why something sounded like something. And the, the idea was that they, the Daleks were all controlled from a central heartbeat. So this pulse was universal to all Daleks. Um, and what you heard was the, the central heartbeat of the Daleks in their um, lair. I like it. Well, and from going from, because you have to do electronic, I mean, I think the soundscape of 60s Doctor Who is, is an extraordinary thing. And I did this thing where I, I watched every episode in order, and if the episode didn't exist, we did the soundtracks. Yeah. And I think 60s Doctor Who is not talked about often enough as being weird. Which was it was a weird program. It's a bit more yeah. down to earth now. Prosaic. Mm. It was a bit out there in the sixties, and the sounds I think mm. have a lot to do with that. Um, well, because we we didn't have a history of space exploration, and people were still talking about you know Yuri Gagarin as, as being special. Nobody had ever been into it. We'd not landed on the moon at that point. No, so it's a completely uncharted. Yeah. yeah, I always had this uh, another sound which. As a student of Doctor Who, you're probably familiar with, is the Scarrow Wind. Mm. The Scarrow Wind, um, I think, is the most the most used thing. It's, it's appeared in all sorts of guises, um, and that was originally um, based on an Irish keening melody, which I played on oscillators, and then put the, through these Moto Sakosha machines. Um, and just fed back into itself uh, for about half an hour, and it just turned into this amazing wind by the end of it. Um, and I, d I used that the scarrow thing, planet scarrow. Uh, we we used to use a lot of very long loops and things, because um, then the things would develop, and then you'd take out the happy accidents all the way along. I was doing one. Um, one day, and we had some visitors from Malaysian Broadcasting. And the loop actually 
went through the machi both machines, went right down to the end of the room, which was about 30 foot long, round a milk bottle full of water, then it went out of the door, um, round a microphone stand, back up the corridor, and back into the room, uh, round another microphone stand. And it, this lady who didn't really know what was going on was wandering around, and she picked up, oh no, she grabbed the tape, that was it, and the milk bottle flew across the room, water everywhere. And she said, what is this? And I think it was Dick said, I think that was a loop. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, yourself and Dick um, are the only two people credited as doing special sounds through the entire history of classic series Doctor Who. Yeah. You do it, then he does it. Yeah. So you both own a, a, a special... And you are both very different people, but did you work quite closely together? Because you, you're almost like two sides of the same coin, in yeah. a way. Yeah, we worked a lot... Very much in the early days, because when I went to the Radiophonic Workshop, the studio manager was supposed to do the creative stuff, and the engineers helped you do it, because they had to plug all the equipment in and stuff like that. Um, no things like synthesizers. So it was fairly complicated setting up a machine, and, and he, Dick, I suppose, taught me a lot of all the early techniques. Um, so he'd always worked with me um, on the early Doctor Who's, and we, we were good friends. Um, and so it was natural that when I left, he would take it over. Um, and I think he was very worried when I went back to the BBC that I'd want to start it again. But I don't believe in going backwards. You know, you need to uh, press on. And I, I was no longer in in the sound making business. I was in you know, moved into sort of management and. Um, I mean, I went, when I went back to the BBC, I went back with a specific job, which was to take it into the 20th century. Um, because in the I think, seven years I'd been away, virtually nothing had changed. They still had the same crappy old equipment and uh, were sharing facilities, and they had two rooms, and people had to go in it through the night and during the day and sort of share all the facilities. Was I went back in. I decided it was going to change. So what had happened in the interim? You'd left the BBC, you'd stopped doing that, you'd, you'd gone away. So where did you go to, what did you do, and why did you come back? Well, I... I'd come to the conclusion round about uh, the early 70s um, that I was really drinking too much, you know, work, working through the night, you tend to. And I thought, this is silly, because if I stay here, I'll turn into an alcoholic. Um, so I wanted to get out uh, and set up my own place. So I started Electrophone Music. And we had a little studio in Covent Garden and I did a few albums, Polydor. Um, then uh, a film called The Legend of Hell House. And again, loads and bits and pieces, and I did that for a few years, and then I was joined by John Lewis, the Canadian composer. Um, and then one afternoon, Paddy Kingsley came to have lunch, and said, I've been sent to sound out whether you'd be prepared to come back as 
assistant head of the department. So I, I, I hummed and ahed a bit and thought and went, sort of went back home and talked to my partner about it. And I'd got sort of bored with the freelance bit. Um, so I decided, yeah, I, I, you know, I would apply for the job because I didn't really care if I got it. That was the really nice thing. Um, because I was quite happy to go on, maybe slightly bored, but I, w I was happy to carry on. It was w working with John Lewis was was great fun. Um, we always had loads of laughs, and we were we were surviving. We didn't realise at that point our, our accountant was siphoning off all the money we were earning. So I then went back to the BBC after uh, I think it was seven years out. Um, during that time, I'd done Legend Pell House. Uh, I'd done, I think, five ballets with Ballet Rombert, Christopher Bruce, choreographer. Um, a few albums with, with John Lewis. Um, ballets with London Contemporary Dance Theatre. Quite a few theatre shows. Um, Sided with Rosie in the West End, Laurie Lee. Um, And I sort of thought, well, you know, I've done all that now, so we go back. And I went back really just to, to try and get the workshop sort of up to date. Desmond had this thing about, oh, you know, it's the ideas, it's not the equipment. Well, it's fine, ideas are great, but when you're working with broken down equipment, um, it just takes long to, so long to do everything that you really need to have you know, decent equipment at your disposal and we didn't have decent equipment at our disposal in the BBC, within the BBC at that time so I went back determined to make change, to change that. Well you can find out if Brian did manage to change anything and actually I'm talking about the J&T era of Doctor Who which he doesn't normally do. Um, I deliberately chose not to ask Brian about things like um, how he came up with the TARDIS sound effect uh, and various other things like that which of course are key contributions to the series but that he's talked about before uh, may I recommend you know, Richard Molesworth's Beginnings documentary and, and the Doctor Who DVD range uh, to cover those sorts of things I'm, I'm trying to um, get different insights and I hope that's okay um, so more from Brian in the next edition of Who's Round in the meantime if you could donate to his charity, which is Oxfam, which is www.oxfam.org.uk, uh, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, until the next time, uh, thanks for listening. Hello? Ah! Ah! Grant! Just concentrate on keeping hold of my hand! Keep hold! I can't! I'm Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. I know what Dana was looking for. There was a connection, a thread running through every search she had Orek make. A name. My name is Rina. Where are you? On the planet Carwin, stranded. I'd always given up hope of rescue, and then I felt a mind reaching out. Yours. I have friends, Villa. I'm being punished. That's what it is. 
Punished. Tarrant. I wonder what happened to Dana. I'll never know now. Grant. Never liked water. I never liked swimming, even as a kid. Did I drown? I'm not sure. You, Avon? We are friends. Good friends. Blake Seven. We understand each other. Yes, we do. Big Finish. We love stories. 